My name is Lex Dad, and I'm a local Darug man. We share country up here in the Blue Mountains with the Gundangara people. I'd like to pay respects to our elders, both past and present. I'd like to pay respects to our young people who are our emerging elders. I'd like to pay respects to Pema Wianga, Mother Earth, and Father Sky, Biami. And I say in our link, local Darug language, Warami Mirega Darug Nyura. Welcome, friends, to Darug country, and Yanana Budrigumara. May we all walk with good spirit, with patience, humility, and respect for one another. Didgeridoo, and thank you. Hello, hello, hello. Uh, this is Catherine. And this is Zach. And we're the hosts of the new radio show, Paperback Writer. Well, it's not that new. Uh, well, actually, that's true. <laughs> I need to update that, actually. Uh, the two-month-old show, Paperback yep. Writer, yep, um, a show about all things books. This uh, is a book show for all paperback writers and readers, featuring book reviews, interviews with local Australian and international authors, New releases, literary awards, novel ideas, and a lot of book-related puns. Um, and as w- I think we mentioned last week, it's not just book-related puns. It just seems to be puns in general. It's true, actually. I saw it. there are a lot of good jokes on Ask <laughs> Roz this week. I've been taking some screenshots. So Yeah. You can't um, go wrong with Ask Roz if you want to uh, look for some uh, really silly puns. and some, uh, some very funny puns, some just not very funny puns. No, but all funny. Kind of funny because they're not funny. All funny, all hilarious. <laughs> it's been a, it's been a pretty, pretty busy week for us, hasn't it? Uh, what, what week isn't a busy week for us these days? I mean, yesterday, I ate a clock. It was very time-consuming. Especially when I went back for seconds. Oh, I sorry. I thought that no, was you the punchline. It was very time consuming. No, well, no, it's just all the all the layers. Okay, all yeah. Well, that works in so many different ways. That pun. You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it actually has been a busy week for us as well, regardless of the the pun. See the segue. I'm so gosh. I'm so good at radio. You are. I know. You're amazing. <laughs> um, the <laughs> we um, had a uh, an amazing author talk on the weekend um, down in our bookshop in Hazelbrook. Uh, so we're the co-owners of Rosie Ravelston Books. Uh, a little little uh, social enterprise bookshop down <clears throat> in Hazelbrook, and we, as as part of our social enterprise, we uh, donate half our profits to charities for refugee and asylum seeker groups, um, charities I should say, um, and as uh, part of that, we had the amazing sister Eileen Crow come up for uh, on Sunday afternoon for an author talk, and she's written a book called Acts of Cruelty, and it's all about the Australian immigration system for refugees and asylum seekers who arrive by plane. Act. Acts of cruelty. Not like a wood chopping act, like act. Yes. Not, oh, that could work quite well. 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 Acts of cruelty. It would work. Acts of cruelty. I just thought for people listening, (laughs) we should be clear. Um, Acts of cruelty. (laughs) Yeah, so I'll I'll talk uh, um, about that uh, book in a minute because that was a book I've read recently, and I, I had the um, the honour of being able to uh, chat with Eileen in front of a, a, a really good crowd of people, and um, we're also going to be playing the uh, the uh, author talk in the second hour of our show today. So um, I've got a recording of it. It might not be the best quality recording, 
uh, <laughs> of an interview ever, but um, she's an amazing person. Mm, it's uh, about what she has to say. Yeah, right? exactly. She's she spent, uh, I, I think, at least 20 years, the last 20 years of her life or so, working directly with people seeking asylum in Sydney um, and trying to navigate the the uh, insane bureaucratic maze. That Impossible is, almost, isn't it? Yeah, the, mm. the, the, the various departments of, of immigration and the like um, that you know, seem to change name every couple of years or so. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating uh, person, uh, fascinating book as well. Actually, there was an article in The Guardian about her on it the was. weekend too, wasn't it? Yeah. A, big, a picture of her too. Like yeah. she's... I don't know, she's quite a big deal. I don't know if she'd like me saying that, but you know what I mean, like in this space. Well, she um, should be. She's remarkable. Girl. Yeah, because yeah. It's, it's a fantastic book. And the, just the, the work that she's done as well over the last 20 years has been phenomenal. Um, you know, she's uh, devoted so much of her life to, to helping people who otherwise just wouldn't get any help whatsoever um, for various reasons, and we'll go into that uh, a little bit later. Um, mm. But yeah, and, and you're right, the amazing Ben Doherty, the Guardian journalist, did a, a great... Yeah. Uh, story not just on the book but also on um, the, the the things that Eileen has been talking about for 20 years as well and how the system is just designed to um, uh, inflict uh, destruction and cruelty mm. on people um, who otherwise should be enjoying the same human rights as the rest of us but for some reason mm. don't it's stupid isn't it yeah. that, that Eileen has to do <laughs> this, that not just Eileen, that, that, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are pushing for the rights of people that, you know, hi, can we have some safety? Our lives are in danger. Yeah. Like it is actually that simple, I think. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so that's what I uh, will be talking about um, because I've been reading her uh, a book, Acts of Cruelty. Um, before I get into that, though, do you, Kath, want to talk about what you've been reading recently? Yeah, I wanted to tell you, though, that I, I went to the doctor uh, and the doctor told me I was colorblind. That really came out of the purple. <laughs> <laughs> I had all these jokes saved for the last that was uh, pretty good. the last few weeks. Another us, Roz. Um, but but I, I, I forgot to use them last time. So it, <laughs> I, I just have a, a, a bunch of jokes in my arsenal. So get ready for that. Um, just before you mm-hmm. uh, tell us about what you've been reading, I just want to say as well, last week we mentioned that this week was going to be uh, a special episode about fan fiction. And yes. we're going to have a couple of special guests as well to talk about that. Unfortunately, um uh, one of them um, got a bit ill, so we couldn't do it this week, but we're planning to do that one next week. No, in probably in about a month. In about a month's time. Yeah. So we're definitely <laughs> okay. still going to do it, but we just Not yeah, next week. We, we, we just wanted to have um, both of these guests because I think yeah. it'll be really good. Exactly. Um, and uh, yeah. That'll be, that that'll was be what really cake, the, the cake was dedicated to Bori. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's on cake. So if you're listening, Bori, that one was for you. Um, what have you been reading, Kath? Right. Well, I've just finished a book by Alison. Whitelock, although now I wonder if it's pronounced Whitlock, but it's spelt Whitelock, um, who is a Scottish author, but she uh, lives in Sydney. So she spent the first 30 years of her life uh, growing up in Scotland and then moved to Sydney and still lives in Sydney. Um, she also has a book of poetry, um, but these books were given to me by my friend Caroline, who uh, knows Alison, is, and you know we own a bookshop, so she's like, oh my gosh, do you know her, and have you read this, and it's amazing, and um, I hadn't uh, heard of Alison at all um so now I have the book and the poetry the poetry I haven't started but it's called um and my heart crumples like a coke can um like a coke can coke can oh wow and what I love about Ellie well actually this one's Ellie Whitlock so I guess maybe she's she shouldn't it to Ellie um but she's very it definitely looks like white lock to me with the e there yeah I think so too yeah um 
so her life growing up was pretty tragic. In Scotland. In yep. Scotland. And to say her father was a total prick is the, the biggest understatement. Um, so a lot of it is about how awful he is, but also that sort of dry tongue-in-cheek Scottish humour where you have to laugh about everything. Yeah. And so it's, you feel, <laughs> I don't know, I was a bit confused because I started mm-hmm. reading and I spoke to my friend who gave me the book and I said, I should be really upset by what I'm reading because it's actually really awful and traumatic, but she seems to write about it in a way that makes it really entertaining and funny and sort of, well, that's how life was and we all get, you know, we just get on with it because that's all you can do, you know? Yeah. And I think it speaks wonders to the resilience of people, um, of, of Ellie and of, and of her mum and her brothers and sisters because her dad... Well, I thought I could read you... The, <laughs> not, the f- not a great person? So, well, yeah. The, 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 the book is called Poking Seaweed with a Stick and Running Away from the Smell. Um, and I really liked it. I'd absolutely recommend it. Sorry, what was the title again? P- poking seaweed with a stick and running away from the smell. <laughs> <laughs> as, as one does. As they did. <laughs> Fair um, enough. And, and it's, I mean, the, the content page. Um, am I allowed to say the A-R-S-E word on radio? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, you just spelt it out. So I think most of our, <laughs> I think our listener can probably spell, to be fair. So. But um, l- the contents, like these are the names of the chapters. Asshole in a tandem. A real pea super. The day Fiona got a brain tumour. Um, <laughs> Christmas day was always the worst. Is that your <laughs> porridge? Are you going to plant crocuses in it? Like they're all <laughs> really, <laughs> Rona fills her lungs at the caravan. Vladimir's deli and my bare ass. Like it's very. Okay. <laughs> Um, but then also, mum tries to kill my dad using out-of-date tranquilizers. Like it's wow. So I'm, I want to read the first. So this is, it's a biography. It's a biography, okay. yeah. So basically, um, she moves to Sydney and meets someone who really loves her, and it's incredible because you know her mum and her, her. I won't speak for her dad, but mm. you know it's not that she's unloved, but she's just you know this dad's he's awful and he's terrible and has made her see herself in a way, you know, that isn't great. So sure. to have someone who loves her so unconditionally is, is quite revolutionary and it really, is, you know, changed her life. Yeah. Um, but um, he... <laughs> I totally lost my train of thought then. So we're talking about... The, <laughs> Sorry. The, the father character and she's just moved to she's just Australia moved to and Sydney. found someone who gives her unconditional yes, love. Yes, sorry, thank you. And yeah. then so she, and she decides to do something to kind of, you know a hobby or whatever. So she tries yep. to do pottery and do- doesn't do it very well. And then mm-hmm. she tries painting and doesn't do it very well and so on and so forth. Yep. And eventually she's going to do a yoga class, but they cancel it and they won't give her money back. And they say, well, you've got to do a creative writing course. And she goes, no, no I don't want to do that. <laughs> Can I think about it? No, you've got to decide now. And she's like, oh God, put me on it then. Okay. And and imagine that's, you know, that's the journey that got her to writing this book. Um, yeah. And it's, I, I want to read the, this is the the blurb on the back. Alison imagined shooting her father with a sawn-off shotgun. Her brother considered using the longest knife in the cutlery drawer. Her mother even tried to poison him with out-of-date tranquilizers, and he deserved it, and I agree with that. A bittersweet account of growing up in Scotland, poking seaweed with a stick and running away from the smell is anything but a misery memoir. And again, I would agree with that, which is crazy. it sounds like a memoir I know it does. It absolutely does. And things that happen, you just, I mean, I'll bloody join them. (laughs) He's He's a real... Wow, piece of work. That wasn't what I was going to say, but yes. <laughs> yeah. With a whimsical disregard for all that's proper. Actually, that sums it up so well. It's so true. <laughs> Alison Whitelock tells her story not as an adult remembering her past, but as the child who experienced it all firsthand. Mm, okay. Recounting the time her grandpa joined the circus, the terrible shame of the bully, budgie collage, and the time her Airedale on wheels came a cropper. 
poking seaweed with a stick, running away from the smell is her first book. Her da hopes it will be her last. Oh, wow. And and that's the thing. It, it's the the way, and, and it, it really is that whimsical disregard for anything proper. She just say, says how she sees the world. Yeah. And there's no uh, sort of, the way she recounts it, you feel like you're you're watching, you're part of this world. Yep. And funny things happen and sad things happen and really awful, tragic things happen. But... You know the, f- the the I mean the strength of the mum, the strength of Ali, and um you know the brothers and sisters is incredible, um and you know they've obviously come out the other end and I mean I don't I actually haven't seen what else she's written as I said I've got this book of poetry, uh and then this book she's written and I I mean I'm, I can't wait to to <laughs> to start the poetry because again the chapters are uh, fantastic. Uh, Pakora for starters, that's the name of one of them. <laughs> <laughs> what you must do. You must keep your mouth shut. That's another one. Right. She's not my friend and runs a fish and chip shop. I don't know. It's <laughs> oh, fair and gentle leak. I, I just, I don't know. She just, it makes me laugh already. And, and even though I haven't, duty-free fags. What's, um, <laughs> what's the uh, quote on the top of that book? Uh, Whitelock is Bukowski with a Glaswegian accent and a nicer <laughs> wardrobe. She's Sharon <laughs> Olds with better manners. Right. Nice. I like that. Yeah, and I I would really recommend it. I thought about reading this part, but I don't know how much time we have. Um, Go on, yeah. Well, okay, so this is towards the end of the book, but um, basically, I mean, the dad absolutely, and this is, you know, a memoir, so yep. the dad absolutely, in my opinion, deserves to die. Um, wow. And they've all talked about it, and but they, you know, at one point someone tries and they say, well, we don't need him dead and you in prison. You know, that's not going to help anyone. We've got to carry it. Yep. And it gets to the point where the mum wants... I actually don't think this is going to be funny, though. If you haven't read the book, I'm realising this isn't going to be funny because it is funny. Um, but anyway, she says, you know, her, her, one of the daughters is um, studying law and that she says, well, mum, if, you, you know, if you're going to try and, get, you know, kill dad, I, I'm going to have to defend you on a premeditated murder charge. Mm. <laughs> the mum replies, well, look, I've thought that through and I think they'll reduce it to manslaughter. And if I do end up inside, I'm going to do a degree in forensic science <laughs> science by distance learning. I, hell it, I hear it's a hell of an interesting course. <laughs> but anyway, Izzy, you'll not have to defend my innocence because I'll proudly plead guilty and any, anybody that knows your dad will understand why I did it. Wow. Well, if you're happy with what you're doing, Mum, I won't stand in your way. And at this point, she's trying to kill him with high cholesterol by buying all this butter and fat, <laughs> hoping that it'll... Because that, and, and, and they're right, like if, if the mum goes away, you yeah. know, the kids are stuffed. Yeah. And, you know, she, the mum and the nana as well and the, her cousins, they're just beautiful and kind. And it's such a stark contrast um, to what they're having to put up. It sounds like a, an incredibly raw and honest memoir. It like, is. I'm struggling to believe that it's a memoir. It really sounds like a work of fiction. But it's really funny too. Yeah, That's wow. the thing that I can't get my head around because she's so forthright in yeah, her um, uh, in her, her observations. And this is in Scotland, you know, and like, like they're quite poor and no one has a lot of money. And at one point she asks, she sees a man who's sober in the street and she asks her mum, her nan, what's wrong with him? And she says, oh, he doesn't drink, you know. Wow. So this is the kind of world they they grew in, grew yeah. up in. And, you know, the dad's in a work accident and they're all hopeful that he died. But no, he do, he's a tough man and yeah. he only broke his leg or whatever. And it's this dry, tongue-in-cheek humour about awful, awful things and the perspective of it as a kid and sort of the, you know, you it's still your dad and, you you know, the, the conflict of that. And, yeah, sure. and then Ali, you know, towards the end of the book, it's her, Ali as a grown-up in Sydney, so I don't know. She moved when she was 30, so I don't know how old yep. she was, but 30 plus. Um, and, you know, her sort of thinking about things that had happened and, and um, you know, awful things happened. Could I have done something differently and mm. should I have done something differently? And 
I, 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 I'm not sure I can really do it justice, to yeah. be honest with you. Um, but you, I you picked a tricky one to, to describe. I, I really did. But look, I would 100% um, recommend, recommend it. it. Wow. I mean, Laura Marnie's got a quote on it. Pure nostalgia with funny bits. Alison Whitelock must be Billy Connolly's comedy love child. Um, wow. And that's the thing. It's, it's funny. And she also, it's got those amazing Scottish-isms. Yeah. You know, talking about like cock-a-leaky soup. And, you know, I actually had to ask my friend what winkle pickers were because I didn't know. Yep. A type of pointy shoe, it there turns out. <laughs> um, but, you know, that sort of peppered through it. And, yeah, this sort of uh, amazing resilience and, I don't know, the ability to be to be able to laugh and carry on and just kind of stick together through it yeah. you know and just the, the, the supporting each other despite it all um yep. so a hundred percent i would recommend it alison whitelock poking seaweed with a stick and running away from the smell and as i said her poetry book is and my heart crumples like a coat can yeah. can um and yes she's just funny i can't wait to read the poetry actually i'm really excited because mm. i know it's going to make me laugh yeah um yeah so Great I, titles as well, to be to be honest. Definitely. I kind of like the titles of both those books. I think so too. Um, a mind that is hilarious, provocative and remarkable. Reading this collection made me feel like I was at a book festival, stand-up comedy night and therapy <laughs> session all at once. <laughs> Every poem is an event. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so I, I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to, to reading that and seeing what else she has. Because honestly, I haven't actually done any research on it. I just finished this book this morning, and yeah. so it's still quite raw and fresh, and yeah. I'm processing it. So Yeah, fair enough. Hello, welcome back to Paperback Writer. Uh, this is Catherine. And this is Zach. And you're listening to Paperback Writer. <laughs> <laughs> on Radio Blue Mountains. Uh, yeah. And, <laughs> I'm Kath- and I'm Catherine. <laughs> um, so you just heard Feist, uh, Graveyard. Um, Feist is a Canadian singer who I really, really love and guitarist and just amazing. Yep. Uh, and then what was after that? Oh, Sigaros. Hop- Sigaros Hopi- mm. Hopiola, I think. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you pronounced that, not me. Uh, Icelandic mm. band, aren't they? Who we saw a few weeks ago down in Sydney. It's true. And, and to be honest, that's probably the easiest of their songs to <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> pronounce. The most accessible yeah. <laughs> for, from a sound point of view as well, I'd say. I would say so. Yeah. Um, yeah. Both both really good bands yeah. and, and singers. Definitely. Um, so... What have you been? What have you been reading? Well, as I mentioned um, before, we played some music. I've been reading uh, Acts of Cruelty, uh, so not Acts, as in A X E, but Acts A C T S. Um, and I read this because I was um, interviewing the author, Sister Eileen Crow, for an, um, an author talk on the weekend. So um, obviously, uh, you know, being a, a semi-decent interviewer, I think I <laughs> wanted to read the book first. Um, and it's uh, it's fascinating. Now, as, as, as I'm, most people who, or anyone really who's listened to this this show or who knows Catherine and myself, uh, would know that we're pretty passionate about the issue of uh, human rights for refugees and asylum seekers, or just human rights. Well, in general, stuff. yeah, <laughs> um, for everybody. Uh, novel, novel idea, isn't it? That's right. So um, we really wanted to have, have Eileen come up to the bookshop and. Uh, um, take part in an author talk because she's this book was only published a month or two ago I think mm. um, and the subtitle uh, for the book is Australia's Immigration Laws and Experiences of People Seeking pr- Protection After Arriving by Plane um, with a forward by Michael Kirby as well the um, uh, amazing um, High Court judge former High Court judge uh, Michael Kirby um, and what really caught me, uh, caught my eye initially, was the fact that this was a book focused on 
people arriving by plane. Um, so a lot of the, the work that um, Catherine and I have done in the past, I think, has been working with people who have arrived by boat, especially mm. because we have experience working in the offshore detention centres um, in Papua New Guinea. Uh, so I was intrigued to have a chat to Eileen about the idea that she wasn't focusing so much on people arriving by boat, but she was focusing more on people who actually land in Australia with valid visas of one sort or another. Mm. Um, and then, and then asylum. Exactly, yeah. and then claim asylum and um, what the process is, is like for them. Uh, and, I mean, the end result is that the process is pretty appalling. And mm. it's, it's this kind of uh, bureaucratic Orwellian nightmare that people have to endure, um, sometimes for up to 10 years or so, mm-hmm. just to be able to get into a position where they, they feel like they are finally safe from persecution and from being sent back to a place where more or quite realistically they could be killed for their beliefs or for their mm. um, their gender or their sexuality mm. or their politics. Uh, and there's this whole process of the Australian government effectively deliberately being cruel to mm. people. Um, and these are people who are living in Australia. Um, they're on Australian soil already. Um, you know, they're for all intents, people who are, um, or intents and purposes, people who are actually um, Australian already in, in the fact that they're living here, they're part of the community, but their human rights and their legal rights are completely different from anyone else living in Australia. And that all has to do with effectively a piece of paper, um, a, a sticker in a passport to do with your visa. Um, and one of the big takeaways I took from uh, this book in particular was the idea that we in Australia, we effectively have two legal systems. Mm. We have a legal system for people claiming asylum and then we have a legal system for everyone else. Mm. And the rights of those two groups of people are completely different. <laughs> um, and uh, Eileen Crow was, I, I think, just as disgusted as I am at the idea that uh, we, we live in a country where we think everyone should be equal under the law and is equal under the law, but it's just not the case at all. Mm. Um, you have very, very different rights if you're seeking asylum well, you just don't have any rights or less rights it's well, not far necessarily fewer, anyway. de- yeah well the, i mean the issue is and and eileen I, the, one of the I, I mentioned i think in the author talk and we'll listen to um the talk in a, about 15 minutes or so mm. um but i mentioned at one stage uh to eileen this idea that uh, in australia there's actually scenarios where people could walk into government buildings and not know if they're going to walk out again because they can, if they're if they if it's their applications being denied and they um, are not effectively allowed to leave the building again, they're taken to the basement, put in the back of a what? white van, and driven straight to immigration detention. And so their their right. partner or their children could be sitting in the office in the reception, yeah, yeah, with no idea what's happened. And so we've got this situation in Australia where you can a person can walk into a government building and effectively disappear. Mm. Um, and be chucked in the back of a van and Although, taken away. To be fair, I mean, I, I know, you know, I've heard of people that it, that's happened to them in the middle of the night. You know, they just, people show up, grab what you can. We're going now. You've got five minutes, yep, you know. Yep. And this is our country yep. that's but doing this. Situations where the, there's a, there was a, a family out in um, regional Australia somewhere. I, I'm not, I can't remember exactly where, but they were driving uh, to work um, uh, on a farm somewhere, I think mm. it was, and there was a, a police roadblock and they were there to 
theoretically, they were doing a random breath test at five uh, o'clock in the morning. Yeah, right. But once they pulled up this, <laughs> this van with workers on their way to work, um, immigration officials mm. came out of the bushes and started um, interviewing people then and there. And because they weren't able to provide ID on the spot, they were taken to the police station and locked up. And I made the point um, in the author talk, if you're uh, an Australian citizen and you're driving down the road and you get pulled over and you don't have your license with you, the police give you the chance to turn up at a police station, Mm -hmm. I think within 30 days or something, and present a license. But in this situation, they weren't offered that opportunity at all. They were taken straight to a police jail. A police jail. It's like something out of a movie, isn't it? Yeah. You can imagine, you know, this happening in a movie, immigration officials emerging from the bushes, you know. Yeah. Oh, surprise, we're here. And God, don't you have better things to do with your time? Yeah. Anyway, sorry, that's not the point. <laughs> oh, <it's> just, <laughs> it just it's, makes it's, me so angry. It's, it's gut-wrenching, some of the stories. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm the, sure. Pretty much the first half of the book is effectively um, Eileen talking to uh, people that she has tried to help mm. in the past and what their experiences have been like and all the... Not, not just the trauma they've had to go through in their home countries, but mm. then effectively to have the Australian government put them through a whole bunch of trauma all over again. Yep. And, and they're living in a, uh, a state of um, uh, suspension, effectively. Mm-hmm. They don't know whether they're going to be allowed to stay or not. Sometimes they're not allowed to work. And mm-hmm. if they get the stamp that says no work on their visa, then that even means they're not allowed to volunteer. They can't even do volunteer work. Right. It's not just paid work. Gosh, and if you've, you've, you're escaping from you know and traumatized what are you going to do just sit around thinking about it all day like that's so unfair and also uh, i I imagine um i haven't read this book but i imagine Mm. that there's a uh no time limit on when they'll get their results by right so there's that indefinite waiting which which was proven to hinder settlement outcomes because you can't settle you can't you you know you don't know what's going to happen imagine that Support in services Australia. keep being cut all the time. Yeah. They just, you know, they, they don't seem to get any better. They get worse. If um, you're allowed Centrelink, it's not the full amount, which yeah. we know is below the living. Which is barely, you can barely live on full Centrelink as it is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's below the poverty line anyway for, for someone on full Centrelink. Yeah, that's right. Um, one of the, the, there was a scenario where um, the people working in the uh, in the office where people were having their claims processed, um, they had fairly high the windows between them and the people claiming asylum were fairly high and they ended up starting, the people who were working there started putting their name tags down on the hem of their shirts so that people claiming asylum wouldn't know who they could make a complaint about. They wouldn't see the person, wouldn't be able to see the person's name even though they were technically still wearing their name badge. Mm. You know, just all these little examples. Um, the situation where the government officials would just constantly be making mistakes paperwork would go missing they'd write down the wrong information like the wrong date of birth um they'd just repeat mistakes over and over again and the people claiming asylum would never get any sort of apology Mm -hmm. out of it there would never be any acknowledgement of a mistake being made but if the person claiming asylum one made one tiny mistake on their paperwork that was grounds for effectively the whole thing to be thrown out yep um, so it just sounds it's, all it, too familiar. It's it? a ludicrous system, um, and and that's one of the things I think the the audience at the author talk in particular really hit home to the fact that this is happening in 2022 mm. in a, a modern Western democracy like Australia. That there is still this there's this underclass of people who are just being denied their basic human rights and and to some extent basic legal rights as well. Mm. Um, all because of the fact that they've had to flee a really difficult situation and are looking for a safe place to, to be. Mm. 
Um, and the fact that the claims can take you know, up to a decade to process oh, as yeah. well. There's a flow chart in the back of the book as well, which lists effectively the process you need to go through in order to successfully claim asylum when you've arrived by a plane. And it's just this, it's an utter mess. I think Eileen's done an amazing job to try and make it look <laughs> organised, but it's a full page of this flow chart just showing every single step that has to be, go, be gone through. And I'm sure, as you say, with any bureaucratic issues, you'll go back to the beginning or yep. you're back a few steps, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, mm. So it was a fantastic talk. And uh, Eileen was clearly very passionate about the issue. She's been doing it for a long time. Wow. Um, I'm really excited to be able to bring the, uh, the recording of the talk to the radio show as well. So um, we'll get onto that uh, soon. But um, highly recommended this book. Um, if anyone has an interest in this issue, if you're a refugee advocate, uh, I think you're really going to be interested in this book. But even if you're someone who uh, is just open-minded about the issue and doesn't know a lot, um, if you're interested and you want to know what people claiming asylum actually have to go through in mm-hmm. Australia, just ignoring all the stuff they've been through to get to Australia in the first place, <laughs> but actually what we, what our government, our politicians put these people through... Um, and the, a really good point that Eileen made as well, uh, it's not just one political party that does this either. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter which of the two major political parties are in government, this policy uh, has continued through both of them. Yep. Uh, and they're both as guilty as each other. Mm-hmm. It's sometimes in different ways, but they're both responsible for this mess. Yep. Um, and it's, it's pretty appalling. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I don't want to talk too much more because we will play the the interview um and uh, i'll leave it up to uh, everyone else to to listen and to make up their own minds but if people want to get the book i know we have it at our shop uh, is it an ebook as well do you know i or? don't know if it's an ebook but it's available on booktopia and okay. through the publisher as well directly and there's um other bookshops too it's only come out a couple of months ago i yeah. think um but uh, i think it will be available in a lot more bookshops soon because it's very compelling reading mm, and it was eileen with an a yes Crow with an Crow E. Crow with an E, that's right. Acts of Cruelty. Yeah. Um, yeah, very powerful book. Uh, but also she's done a fantastic job at writing it too because it, it's very readable. It mm. flows really, really well. Um, she actually did a PhD oh, uh, wow. as well, if I'm not mistaken, around – I can't remember exactly what the subject was, but it was around this issue, Wow, I believe. So, yeah. Incredible. She's an amazing um, individual. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we, hopefully we'll get her back up to the Blue Mountains next year. Um, yeah. I wasn't chat. able to go. I, I, I mm. have big <laughs> FOMO. Yeah. I, I really, <laughs> really want to um, – yeah, one, read the book, and two, yep. you know, hear her speak. We've still got some copies, right? Yep, we do, yeah. we do, yeah. Um, so Rosie Revelston Books in Naughty Studios in Hazelbrook yep. on the Great Western Highway. Um, pop in, and we, we also have a bunch of refugee and uh, books about people seeking asylum and by refugees and people seeking asylum. So yep. if you want to come by, have a chat, have a rant with us, we'll always <laughs> join in. <laughs> and we, have, we also have free delivery um, throughout the Blue Mountains as well. There's no purchase minimum mm. either. So if you just want one book, well, you can buy it and we'll come and drop it off at your place. God, what a great service, eh? <laughs> um, moving on to something uh, less <laughs> I know, horrific, it's been a bit of a heavy one this week, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> this might be a good time to talk about Dracula. Well, actually, I was going to talk about wolves. Um, I okay. taught my, my pet wolf how to meditate. Now he's in a werewolf. <laughs> a, what's a werewolf? Oh, I will. Oh my a god! Okay. Do, do, do you need okay. me to? He's in. Spell it out. Yeah. Break. A, a werewolf. Break wolf. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Should yep. we try again? No. Okay. 
I got you. That makes sense. Was all that right. another Ask Roz? Of course it was. Of course it was. Yeah. All credit. Most of my <laughs> jokes, all credit to uh, Ask Roz. At least the, you know, the ones that I set up so smoothly. <laughs> um, so Dracula Daily, actually yep. heaps has happened. Um, so it's been all about Lucy. So remember that Lucy uh, was bitten by, well, they didn't explicitly say it, but she has fang marks on her A neck. werewolf? And, and a werewolf. <laughs> um, you know, she, she has, uh, yeah, fang marks on her neck. She's ghastly, chalkily pale. All the red seems to have gone even from her lips and gums. The bones in her face stood out prominently. Her breathing was painful to see or hear. So she's just really struggling. And if she does sleep, it's horrible, horrible nightmares. So as I said last week, Dr. Van Helsing... Dun, dun, dun. No, I thought you might join in. No, just me. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Van Helsing. Surely you've heard of Van Helsing. Yes. Yeah. yes. Um, so he has come from Amsterdam to see her. Um, and he was very, I, what did it say? His face was marble, like marble and his his eyebrows furrowed, you know, close to the, his nose. And, you know, he's very um, confused as to what's going on. Um, and so he gives her he 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 gets someone to give her a blood transfusion um enough that they sort of have to go and lie down and eat because so much blood has been taken mm-hmm. um and it's amazing lucy suddenly is is doing great uh you know she she she's full of life the next day and everything's brilliant um then sure enough she goes back to as she was she's yep. you know you know the ghastly pale that kind of thing Another blood transfusion. So they go through, I think Arthur does one. I can't remember, someone else. And then in the end, Van Helsing has to do one um, because they, you know, (laughs) giving blood. And the the two marks on their neck, they think, come from pins or something. Well, no, that was what Mina thought. Mina, because she said, oh, it's cold. I'll I'll pin this around your neck because of the cold. Um, They've talked about it. And the person who's uh, writing... I'm getting all the characters confused now. See, this is why I need um, Alex here to help. But um, uh, he says he's noticed it and there's sort of white around the outside of them. Yeah. Um, anyway, so the third blood transfusion um, happens and um, Van Helsing calls and he says, look, I've got you some flowers and it loses all excited and it turns out they're garlic flowers. Uh-huh. Garlic flowers uh, that he makes a wreath for her to wear around her neck when she sleeps and he gets the... Uh, the, the garlic and he rubs it on all the sashes and all the jams of the doors, anywhere where any air might come in all around the window. Why is he doing this? Does he know the effect that garlic has? See, Van Helsing holds his cards very close yeah, to his chest. Okay. And I think I said last week, I didn't say it very well, but he's very vague. Yep. Uh, so anything he says, he's sort of, this is what I think, but I'm not going to say it, but what do you think I think? I don't know. He's, I find okay. him quite frustrating. And he's clearly a man of, you know, he's well thought out and very intelligent, and that's yeah. why they called him in. Um, here's, here's an idea off just off the top of my head. How about we douse everything in your room with garlic? Just see what happens. And they're like, yeah, why not? Let's give it, give a, go. it a go. But that's the that thing, because sense. he's this esteemed doctor, and I mean, gotcha. you know, medicine, I mean, they didn't, uh, Alex made so the point. So if a doctor said that to me right now, I'd be like, Nah, I think I'm going to get a second opinion. Yeah, but to be fair, I don't know if Lucy has much of a choice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, She's yeah. used up all the blood in the house. And Alex made a point yesterday. They didn't check what type of blood they were or anything like that, which yeah, is interesting. Yeah. I guess they didn't do that back then. No. So, I mean, this was back... When was the book written? The 18... Something or other. Late 1800s. Yep. Um Anyway, so Lucy, suddenly she's wearing this wreath of garlic. They've coated everything in, uh, in garlic. Uh, she says, I'm finally at peace. I have no fear of sleep or of the flapping outside the window, which <laughs> I think is like a bat or something trying to get in, right? Yeah. Which is, you know, Dracula, this is me. Yeah. 
next minute, <laughs> the mum comes in the next day all proudly and she's like, oh, God, I helped Lucy last night. And the men are like, sorry, what? And she's like, oh, the, do- the room was so stuffy, so I opened all the windows. <laughs> and she was wearing this weird, like, wreath about her neck. I took yeah. that off and thank God she's had such a good night's sleep now. She'll be feeling so much better. And they're like, no. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's kind Oops. of where we're up to now. And so, you know, we, we get this inkling. Um, well, I get this inkling because, you know, vampires and garlic and things. You know, I've put that together. But I wonder, the people who read this book, they – I don't know if they knew the garlic trope. Mm. So they would have just gone, what the heck? Yeah, that's right. You know, yeah. I'm like, oh, Van Helsing, I know that name. Yeah. Oh, garlic, I know that's, you know, against vampires. And yeah. earlier on, Jonathan, you know, was given a crucifix to wear. And I know, oh, well, that, you know, wards off vampires. But yeah. I, I think it'd be really interesting reading this book um, and, and going, what the? Well, <laughs> Why is there garlic everywhere? There's a lot at stake here. So oh, thanks for that. That's all right. Yeah. Oh, th- oh no. <laughs> Smooth, right? <laughs> yeah. Didn't I, even get that. No? Good to like a lot of your puns today. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, so that's where we're up to. So yeah, cool. we've got we've got emails every day, which is quite exciting. Um, and I don't, we still haven't heard from Jonathan or Mina or anyone else. It's all sort of focused on Lucy and her well-being. Um, it's and all yeah, happening. It's all happening, mm. and I'm just. I, I again, I don't know how people turn into vampires in this world. Mm. Is it being bitten by a vampire? Is it? Is is she? Oh, and one other thing: when she was transfused someone's blood, she felt really close to them. And and that was something she described as feeling, you know, like they're close to her. And okay. is this her way? Maybe she's turning into a vampire and she's mm. feeding on that blood. Mm. Is Dracula coming in the night and feeding on her? Mm. I don't know. Well, I think that's a given, isn't it? That well, last bit that clearly someone, well, a vampire is feeding on her. Well, I don't know because maybe if she's turning into a vampire, she's somehow feeding on the blood in her. So I don't uh, okay. know how vampires work. That's I don't know. I'm going to be honest. It's yep. it's an odd one. Um, but. Yeah, she's still, you know, as naive as ever and, you yep. know, classic Lucy. Classic Lucy. <laughs> classic. That sounds right. Hashtag classic Lucy. Cool. Well, um, yeah, so that's Dracula Daily. Beautiful. Thank you for that. Um, it's almost one o'clock. It's 12.58. So I think we might play a couple of songs and then um, I'll try and uh, play this interview um, from the Author Talk on the Weekend with Eileen Crow. Uh, I do just want to point out that I recorded it on my phone, so I'm not... In- 100% sure the, the quality of this interview is going to be like. Um, but I definitely think it's good enough to, to broadcast over the radio. And it's well, well worth a listen because mm. she's an amazing um, person. Uh, and it's it was a fantastic event. And welcome back to Paperback Writer on Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM with Zach and Catherine. Catherine. <laughs> FM. Uh, <laughs> Catherine FM I think that I should like be that. our new radio show yeah, Catherine it's got a good FM. little jingle um, <laughs> So uh, I mentioned before we uh, were going to have a uh, broadcast The interview that we did with Eileen Crow, The author of Acts of Cruelty That was on um, Sunday afternoon uh, So we'll play that um, I will admit also that I did miss the very beginning of the recording Because I was too engaged in actually talking to Eileen to press the buttons, but um, I only missed about a minute <laughs> of the intro, so... Um, Should we rea- re- reenact it? Uh, no, okay. we shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, here it is. So this is the interview with Eileen. Um, I think it's a really interesting, um, compelling mm, um, experience. So, yeah, hopefully you uh, enjoy. Uh, I did a few things, and then I went to Papua New Guinea, and I spent about 18 years up there. I started off in teaching primary school and then a domestic science type school where I taught illiterate 
teenage girls and then um, adult education in the village, pre-independence. So we were uh, getting people ready for independence and then I was there post-independence as well. So we had a big day the day Charlie came for independence, King Charles now. <laughs> and uh, oh, it, was, it was quite funny because, you know, we don't get visitors up there and we lived in the rural area. And um, I came into the city to do the shopping and this other nun was really loved the uh, royalty. So wherever Charlie went, we went. And we'd go in. And in the end, he said, oh, not you two again. <laughs> <laughs> Such a small place. And there were so few people following me. Um, so, yeah, so I, I always say I grew up in Papua New Guinea. It was really an amazing place to live and learn about a new culture, a different culture. So when I came back to Australia, it kind of after 18 years or so, you see your country in a different, uh, from different eyes with different glasses. And so I kind of, you know, didn't know whether I wanted to be there or here. Anyway, I stayed. Uh, I got involved with the refugees uh, because I was working, another naughty bit, I was working with the Archdiocese of Sydney in the um, Social Justice Office and then George Pell came along, so I didn't renew my tenure. <laughs> but it was there that I was um, contacted by a, um, a, a social worker who rang me and she said, look, can you do anything for this family? They're, um, they're in a desperate situation and they're living on cheap noodles. So I said, oh, I don't know, I don't know anything about refugees or whatever. So I said, look, let me go and visit them and I'll just get an idea, get a feel of what's going on. So then I went and visited them and I was shocked really. I um, went to this little duplex house and down the corridor and into the kitchen where I sat with the couple and there was this big strapping man sitting at the table sobbing absolutely sobbing and I thought there's something really wrong here so then we had a long conversation and uh, I sort of then started to talk to the lawyer across the road from the office and a few other people said what the hell do I do so we got involved from there mm. and um, you have done a PhD as well um, how did you come to the idea of doing a PhD and what was your PhD about I've forgotten. <laughs> um, I came to the idea because I went to a, um, a, a international conference in Durban on uh, racism and xenophobia. It was the most amazing conference I've ever been to. There were these... Uh, South Africa. South Africa, yeah. yeah. It was really amazing. And I went with uh, uh, Eileen Pitaway. Some of you might know her. She lives up this way. And she was in charge of the um, Refugee Research Centre at the University of New South Wales. And we got talking and I started to talk about all these families that I was sort of, they were coming out my ears. And she said, you've got to do a PhD. You've got to do a PhD. <laughs> and I said, 
I didn't even pass intermediate. <laughs> How can I do a PhD? So anyway, I did it. And um, and then it took me a while to get the book out because I was still doing a lot of cases. And along came COVID. Nobody could ring me up. I didn't have, couldn't go and visit anybody. So what do you do after you've cleaned the cupboards? Mm. <laughs> Write the book. <laughs> So Fill the covers with toilet paper was the first thing to do. <laughs> and, um, how long did it take you to write this book? Oh, only a few months. Yeah, yeah because all the stories were still in my head. Yeah. And I had all the research because of the PhD. So the chapters that are more technical um, came, you know, it was adjusted, of course, and it was brought up to, time, up to date. But... Um, the stories were so awful that they don't leave your body, yeah. you know. So they were there, so I just wrote them out. And then I visited each one again and asked them if it was okay to publish. One of them asked me to change the wording of one um, piece because the uh, father was brutally raped and she didn't want her kids to read that. So I said, no, I'll change that, you know, just say. I was, had a really bad experience. Yeah, sure. You know, so um, that's fair enough. Mm. Yeah, it is fair enough. <clears throat> and um, what I a question I really want to ask you, having read the book, um, is the aspect about people arriving by plane rather than than boat. Um, so uh, I think I can't remember if it was you or Michael Kirby who does the forward in the book um, says something about a, there's a special animosity to people who arrive by boat. Um, which I think most of the people in this room would probably be pretty familiar with. But So why did you choose to talk about people who had arrived by plane rather than boat? Only because I worked with them. Okay. I worked with the people. I did visit the detention centre and I saw a number of people there that were by boat, but I had all the um, documents because I helped these people. Okay, I'll go back. Um, once they've been through the system... They're not allowed to get any help from lawyers again. They're supposed to get on a plane and go back to where they came from. And these people were too frightened to go back. And so when they asked me to help them, I would ask them for their documents and get all their papers um, and do an FOI and get um, freedom of information, all, all that I could collect and then read it through. And then... Um, and then we'd work out what to do next and whether we could get back into the system, go back to um, the tribunal again or whatever. So I had all that documentation. So I really thought we need to get this out into the public arena. It's just because people know a lot about um, the um, people who arrived by boat. But I call these people the invisible refugees because... They arrive on a um, legitimate visa, either a, um, a visitor's visa or a tourist visa or a student visa. And generally, as soon as soon after they arrive, they apply for um, refugee status to be accepted. So they, um, they just then have to find their own um, accommodation. They don't talk to... Generally, don't trust their own people from their own culture. 
because they're frightened that they'll send information back to the country where they've escaped. So that a, a huge thing to build up trust, huge, even even for me to try and gain their trust was big. But, um, yeah, they, they, you know, in some places they were kind of tried to be labelled the queue jumpers mm. because we have a legitimate way of coming to the country and we have... 1,500 people a year or something that we allow in for settlement programs. So these people are not settled, not from the settlement program, so they don't get any assistance whatsoever. And um, that, and because they've been through the system, then they're literally hunted, you know, so they have to work under the radar. They're not allowed to work, so they have to do cash money um, if they get caught. So, you know, there's stories in the book about how the, the children would come home from school terrified that their parents wouldn't come home from work because at that time it was all in the media about um, uh, raids on schools and taking their children to the detention centre, remember those, and uh, and in the workplaces and um, where else was there? There was raids. Oh, and then they saw we saw burly guards pushing people onto planes and then... You, those... told, you told a story about um, in the regional part um, of Australia where people were driving to work. Do yeah. You tell that story? Yeah, there was a young mother who had a three-month-old baby and she was driving her parents to the farm at 5.30 in the morning and um, the um, there was a roadblock and the police were... Uh, run. Ran a breath test. Breath, breath testing. Yep. But before they got very far out of the bushes, come these burly, um, uh, what would you say? They're not guards, but they're um, compliance officers. And they had to show their um, identity cards. And of course, they didn't have them. And of course, then they were thrown in the back of the paddy wagon and when they were, had enough people in the paddy wagon, they'd take them to the to the police station and put them in the cells. And it's none of their business, you know. I mean, they, they were colluding with the, um, the... The police were colluding with the, the, the department. Um, but even in um, coming in from um, overseas, you know, a couple managed to save up enough money once they they got their um, uh, passports, you know, once they've got citizenship, the first thing they do is get passports. And this couple, every time they go out of the country, she gets called into a little room and um, told that she still has a debt to the, to the government, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's none of their business, mm-hmm. none of their business whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible stuff. And it's that kind of presumption of guilt as well, not presumption of innocence. I mean, if you get pulled over um, as an Australian citizen and you don't have your driver's licence, you have an opportunity to report to the police station to show your licence later. You don't get put into a paddy wagon and taken straight to to jail. But these people not having a a passport or some sort of identifying documents, it was a completely different rule for them. And she had a a baby on the breast and Mm. she said, "I, I need to go and feed my baby. And, but no, they weren't going to let her. Mm, yeah. yeah. 
Um, one of the things that kind of reminds me a little bit about as well, and I think you mentioned this with the children being a bit scared about whether their parents were going to come home or not. Um, when uh, some of the people in your book uh, are actually going into government department buildings yeah. and then they never quite know if they're actually going to come out of that building or not. Mm. And they quite they may find themselves being hustled into a white van in the basement and driven straight to a detention centre. Yeah. Even with friends and family just sitting in the office waiting for them to come out. Yeah. Mm. Um, and reading that, and making me realise that this is the sort of thing that happens in Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane. It's mm. not something that happens in a totalitarian regime, you know, in, in another part of the world. And the that, idea that you can walk into a building and just disappear essentially. And that, yeah, you, you go through a door and then you're gone and they wouldn't tell the wife where, where he'd gone. Mm. They wouldn't give him and she kept ringing every day and they still wouldn't tell him. Tell her where she, where he was, and he immediately went on to a hunger strike. Yeah, and uh, so he came out of it that way. Um, another one. Oh, this poor man. He was in such a state. Um, the, the the story goes like this: the woman rang me and she said, um, "Can I come and see you?" And I said, okay, where do you want to meet? Oh, we'll meet in a shopping centre. Um, I can't tell my husband I'm doing this because he's terrified uh, that you'll report you'll report him to the government. So I said, okay, well, we'll be very careful. And so we had our first conversation. And then um, I said, look, you know, next time we meet, can you give me your papers? And she said, yes, we could do that. Um, a couple of times later, I actually went to the home. All the windows were blacked out, terrified. The husband was so terrified that they'd be found and spotted. And the thing was I had to get them to the compliance office to get a visa, a legitimate visa, before I could put in an application to the minister to, for consideration, his consideration for humanitarian reasons. How am I going to get this man there? Anyway, I assured him that I had, I always have the submission ready because they give me a week and they say, you know, well, come back in a week and renew. They'll only give the visa for a week. So that by that time, the submission has got to be in there and up on their screens by the time we get back. So I always have it with me and I say, look, there it is. I'm going to put it in tomorrow. So that's fine. Um, so to get the visa, the uh, parents have to sign a paper for the um, children. We couldn't find him. We got up there, uh, up into the office, which was, I think, on the fourth floor, and um, sitting there for a few minutes, he's gone. He's gone. He's absolutely terrified. And, and then we ring him and say, get back here. You've got to sign a paper. So he comes back to sign his paper and then... They go off and do their bit. He's gone again. Where is he? He's gone. And so we got called up to the desk again and said, you know, can you sign this paper for the children? Yes. Uh, now where's the children's father? We said, he's gone to have a cigarette. I, I, I'm not sure where he is. I think he's just gone to have a cigarette. 
So they said, oh, don't worry about it. The mother could sign it. Thank goodness. In those days, it was quite good because mm. he doesn't smoke, you know. Mm. But, yeah. You know, it's just avoiding the truth. It's not a real lie. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the lines that really stood out to me as well, uh, I can find it here. Um, in a culture of avoidance and exclusion, reviewers do not want to find reasons for an outcome that would affirm the need for Australia's protection. Um, and I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about that's basically in reference to uh, the officials, the people who are working in the system um, and how th there's um, KPIs put on people to make sure that they um, are not accepting too many people as valid refugees, that there's um, some people, some people who are assessing claims um, basically never approve a single claim, whereas other people approve 90% of claims and there can not be many. not many, but there can be, you know, just massive variation depending massive. on who you happen to get. Yeah. Um, there was one thing you talk about uh, where the, the, I think the, the counters were fairly high and the staff started wearing their name tag on their hems so that they yeah, would they be harder to complain about them. Up there, yeah. uh, box, you know, you can put your complaints in there. Yeah. You can't identify yeah, um, and the other thing uh, you mentioned that the that those um, officials would make mistakes mistakes all the time. They would have really negative um, outcomes on people, but you would never get an apology. It would take uh, all your effort to even find out what happened. Whereas if someone claiming protection made a mistake, there was zero tolerance. One little mistake in the paperwork, and that was pretty much it. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what it was like dealing with? the officials involved in this process on a day-to-day -day basis? Oh, dealing with the officials. Look, in the beginning, it wasn't too bad because uh, there were some really decent people in the office uh, in Sydney. And um, I know one woman rang me one day and she said, Aileen, she said, you've been failed again. I don't know why. Just put it in again. And at that stage, we could put in a... <coughs> A number of submissions. Now a repeat submission just crossed out. But in those days you could. But she could not work out why. And I said, I know why. Because they had to send them to Canberra. And um, it was the uh, Ruddick's PA, uh, his personal assistant. And I'd had a shocking argument with her on the phone once. And I think anything that came with my name, I got blocked from then on. Yeah. So I dutifully reported referred her to the secretary of the department and she was removed. <laughs> but she was sent to the RRT. Yeah. It was the um, Refugee Review Tribunal at the time. The system's crazy. The, uh, when they, they put in a, an application for protection and the assessors have KPIs that are based on negative results... So they've got to fail them in order to get promotion. I mean, it's, it's, it's just amazing. Um, and then, so, I mean, we could have saved so much money without all these reviews and court cases if they were allowed to be, if they were allowed to be fair and just in the beginning. Yeah. So from there we go to the tribunal and the tribunal officers have a quota they're only allowed to pass 20% and they have to fail 80%. So if you're, a, you know, in my mind, if you're a refugee, you're a refugee, mm. according to the United Nations 
uh, definition of a refugee. So, I mean, that is absolutely crazy. So they get failed. And they get failed because um, what they tell them is implausible or um, they, they, uh, the reviewer speculates about what it could have been rather than what it was. Um, oh, there's a whole list of them, uh, reasons I've listed. They might make an assumption that things aren't, aren't actually that bad in your country, even though they've never been there before, they don't know anything about that place, those kind of things. Yeah, yeah. And there was one about, which really ridiculous, was something about um, if, you, if you didn't do that, then you'd be all right. Well, you know, if you're a truck driver and you own a business, well, you know, of course you're going to go back and run a business. Yeah. So how can you be all right? A lot of crazy, crazy, crazy things. So they get failed. So then we go to the courts. And this is where I, I think it's quite discriminatory, really. Um, the courts are not allowed to look at the merits of the case. So they're not allowed to say, oh, my God, you know, they, they're refugees. They're only allowed to look at whether the um, the reviewer made a mistake in law. And there are what they call jurisdictional errors and non-jurisdictional errors. So if it's in their, just juris, their jurisdiction to make an error, they can make an error. It's okay. It's okay to make an error. It's only... only that's, jurisdictional errors that they can pick up. And then even if they pick up that error in the courts, and mind you, the refugees are the ones paying the court fees, yeah, um, if they pick up a, a, an error, they can't say, well, you've made a mistake, therefore they are refugees. They have to say, you have to take that back now and review it again. So when they go back to get it reviewed again, they're not allowed to have the same reviewer, I might tell you. So they get another reviewer. And that reviewer looks at it, and this is the case I've put in there. It's just um, they had been through um, twice before the system and they were never found to be, um, what's the word they use, um, credible. They were found to be credible. But the, this is the other thing in the in the reviews. The reviewer has met her, say, her quota. So she says, they're credible witnesses, but I can't make a convention, I can't find a convention reason. But so therefore they can, they send it back to the, um, to, to the department and suggest the department then say, well, okay, it's a humanitarian issue, so we'll send it to the minister, okay? But then the department, then the person there, his KPIs are not going to be helped by doing that, so they don't bother. So it gets stuck again. It's just awful. So anyway, the court sent it back to the RIT. The RIT don't have to, don't have to consider why the court sent it back. They can just say he's not a credible witness, so therefore I don't need to look at the courts. Yeah. But, so then you can go to the high court if you want to go to the high court. Mm. If you go to the high court, more expenses and, you know, lawyers' fees. So that case we took to the Human Rights Commission in Geneva. 
and um, and we won the case there. But um, it's a bit. It's just absurd that you need to do that, though. It's ridiculous. Like, it's just that, because they should have been uh, recognised in in the first two years of their thing, which took them ten years. Because, but that that. Um, um, person in the office in the department refused to send it, send the recommendation on to the minister. Mm. And But they sent, what they do though, they send it back to the person, that officer made the first decision about this family, negative decision. So he's hardly going to go against <laughs> his own stuff, yeah. you know. So they, we got, uh, the, we got the case looked at again um, through uh, because the um, secretary of the department said, get the children, put put a case in on behalf of the children. So we did that. But the custom is that any decision maker has access to all the previous files. So they know exactly what the review did, exactly what the courts did. And if it's already been to the minister, they know that the ministers refused them too. So some little officer, a clerk in the Department of Immigration is hardly going to go against all those heavies, mm. you know. Yep. It's, it's set up to fail. It's a toxic mm. system, yep. absolutely toxic. Yeah. Um, speaking of toxic systems, well, I know you talk a bit about the dehumanising language used around this space too, um, and that kind of reminds me a bit of uh, being on Manus when um, all the people who arrived were given boat IDs. Yeah, numbers. Yeah, exactly. And they were numbers depending on which boat they arrived on and the like. Mm. Um, and we were actually told not to use real names. We had to use boat IDs mm. to talk to people. Um, can you maybe tell us a little bit about how that kind of works within the department as well? What sort of language do they use that takes humanity away from people? Well, it's always the applicant. It's the applicant. It's not a person with a name. Um, and the person that makes the decision is the delegate. He, has, he or she hasn't got a name either. And then the person who makes the, does the review is the member. So the member says this and admit the member finds that. So they don't have a name either. And, and at one stage... I got a decision with only a number, zero zero one six five three. So I wrote back zero zero six six one three three. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, it's it's just um, yeah. They is that is that uh, being driven down from the top? That kind of idea because I know a lot of politicians tend to use dehumanising language yeah. in this space too. Well, it's, it's all part of the system, isn't it? And it all comes from the top. Yeah. But one of them was really something because it was a two-month-old baby. And the um, I was reading the, reading the document. Um, and sh this reviewer starts off saying, you know, we're not considering the parents. It's the applicant. It's the two-month-old baby. And then later on in the view, review it says... Um, the applicant, what was it? Uh, something about if the applicant could do this, uh, uh, then this would happen. But, you know, <laughs> the applicant was two months old. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they get all the language mixed up. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, 
Yeah. I mean, we got decisions where uh, they were clearly cut and paste, but they forgot to change the names. <laughs> the names, yeah. the uh, country where they came from, uh, there were three things they forgot to change. And they're reading the whole thing and they're saying, hey, what's going on here? Yeah. And you have to fight really hard against any of those kind of errors, whereas if the people making the claim make a, make make a, a tiny sense. error. yeah, And the t- tiny errors were like hey, somebody's been here for um, nine years, they've been through the system, they're even more traumatised, and they say that um, in, uh, say, 1995, um, oh no! They, well, okay, they put in their application that in 1995 this happened, and then during the um, conversation, the interview, when they're as nervous as anything, they're scared stiff of authority figures, and they say, "Oh, it was in February 1996." So then he's not a credible witness. One was almost oh, ridiculous was that this um, this. This family were being harassed every night and, uh, you know, windows broken, the little girl waking up with glass on her face and uh, things like this. And the mother said that there was a blue car outside. She went to the um, police and reported it and they said, well, you know, give me the name. As if she can give a name. You know, she said... Of the people in the car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. give me the name of the people in the car. Anyway, in their, in their application, they said it was a blue car. Now, the, the interviewer says, was it a light blue car or a dark blue car? Was it a light blue or dark blue? Yeah. Well, you know, what is... Where's the degree anyway? Mm-hmm. What is light and what is dark? <laughs> yeah. Honestly, and not a credible witness. Yeah. Mm. Um, you mentioned something a bit before about uh, people sometimes having their right to work cut off yeah. entirely um, and that they would get the dreaded no work stamp on their visas. Mm. Um, but something I didn't know was that um, if you get a no work stamp on your visa, that means no paid work, no volunteer, volunteer yeah. work either. You can't even volunteer to do anything. Mm. Um, have you come up against people um, in the last 20 years or so who complain about refugees coming to Australia and trying to steal jobs or people who, refugees coming to Australia and not wanting to work, that kind of thing? And do you um, do you take the opportunity to say to them, well, look, this is the rules that we've implemented. They're not allowed to work. They can't even volunteer, even if they wanted to. They work. Yeah, well, they have to. They don't have much of a choice. But do, I do say have, to them. Don't tell me. Yeah. I don't want to hear. Yeah. I don't want to know anything about it. Whatever you do is your choice. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, people do. Um, you know, there was a lot of that in the media at one stage. Mm. The refugees are stealing our jobs. Mm. But they um, they do the jobs that nobody else wants to do anyway, yeah. you know. So that's interesting. But one of the interesting things was that I found – Every time I go and see them, they tell me more stories, which are not documented, but uh, this one might be, I'm not sure. But uh, they say as soon as they get to the workplace, before they do anything else, they check out the entrances and the exits. Mm -hmm. 
even on construction sites, um, even if they're in a restaurant with some friends, they check them out. Even in my home, they check them out. Yeah. Mm. And there's examples of people working for three months for employers um, and then the employers don't pay them anything and they say, well, go to the police. Bring me your papers. Yeah. This poor man, this is the, the, the nerves, the poor man that was so nervous and he was, um, he worked on a construction site for three months. He had a contract for three months and they said, we'll pay you at the end. So he did. He went and uh, worked and went to get his pay on Christmas Eve and they said, show me your papers. He was gone like a shot. Yeah. So, you know, so mum says they didn't get any Christmas presents that year, mm. the kids. I think that kind of leads on to the, the next thing I just want to talk about, which is why does this keep happening? Because it's not just uh, department officials who have these kind of views, not just politicians, but it's, you know, Australians. It's people who run businesses and know, knowingly take advantage of people in this situation. It's, um, you know, people who actively vote for these kind of policies. Um, and you mentioned towards the end of the book about how it's, it all comes down to political will. And the fact is that we keep electing people who keep implementing these policies. Um, what do we do about that? How do we, how do we change that? Um, How do you convince people what's right and wrong in this space? I, Apart from writing excellent books. Um, yeah, well, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book, yeah. isn't it? Um, I think people are, are getting to know a lot more about the situation now than they did 20 years ago. Um, and I think thanks to Bill Awela, mm. a lot of people got a lot of more information about how terrible the system was, particularly if there's kids involved. Yeah. You, people cannot tolerate children being yeah. badly treated. So that's... I keep talking about Bellowella because I think people can connect to it. Um, the The problem with the, uh, the decisions that are made, I think really the only... The only way we're going to get out of this is if we have a Bill of Rights because um, I've argued this before and they say, oh, yes, but there's a parliamentary committee that checks everything for human rights. And I said, yes, there is, but they don't have to take any notice of it. <laughs> They've done reports. I've read reports and, like, you read one two years later and even in the last paragraph they say you've taken no notice of the last report we expect you to do something two years later again they still haven't taken any notice they don't have to take any notice so it's got to be really um, a bill of rights to be effective and in that then even if they don't introduce any law about whatever they're going to try they send it back to the department, to the parliament and say, well, look, you know, this is discriminatory or this goes against all our obligations, write it again, you know. Yeah. But, um, but you know, like Russell Broadbent, I, I have a lot to do, I did have a lot to do with Russell Broadbent and I would be telling him what to say and what to do in parliament and he'd say, I can't because my people don't want it. Mm. Well, he's the leader. Mm. Get out there and teach them what they want. 
You know, I mean, you don't just sit back and say, oh, my poor people don't want it. Educate them. Yeah. You know? Leading by following. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and on that note, um, what do you make of the current government? Because I know a lot of people in my social circle um, when the coalition lost the last election seemed to think that this was the moment that everything would get better for refugees and asylum seekers. Yeah. Yeah? Mm. Do you, <laughs> how do you feel about that assumption? I'm sceptical at the moment yeah. because we were all geared up the last time Labor got in. And thought, ah, rah, yeah. you know, things are going to change. No, they didn't. They didn't. Um, Evans was quite good for a while. I can't mm. think of his first name. But then he he got worn down. Yeah. And he was it wasn't. So at the moment, um, I was talking to Paul Powell from the Refugee Council the other day and he was just back from a 35-minute chat with Giles. No, was it Giles? Yeah, it might, might have been Giles. Yeah, it was Giles. And they've put up a few propositions and so forth. And what they're saying is that um, they're going to make one announcement about a whole lot of issues. So I don't know whether they're going to sneak in a few things or they're going to leave them as they are, which, mm. you know, could be as dangerous as, you know, so I don't really know where it's going. Um, I'm sceptical. Yeah. Mm. Um, there was one stage in the book I remember you mentioned that you um, asked Anthony Albanese to take something directly to the minister and you, <laughs> do you want to tell that story? <laughs> Sometimes I made me laugh out loud. I have a bad temper. <laughs> <laughs> I um, I had this I had this case, and my I what I presented to the minister was my interpretation and their interpretation, and I said, "You make the choice." This is what I know. These people I've known them for ten years. This is where I what I believe is true, and this is what they're presenting, and I, you know. My submissions are usually like 30 pages long and I took it round to Albanese's office and I said, the thing is, the process is, if it's a repeat request to the minister, the department can dismiss it like that. They don't have to go to the minister, they don't have to make a choice. So I had to work out a way to get it to the minister and not the department. So I, I live in Albanese's area. I was in his electorate at that time. It's changed a bit now. So I went around and I said, look, I've got this submission and I want you to hand it to, um, oh, what is his name, that big tall fellow? That's, Coleman? No, before Coleman. Um, Tony Burke. Tony Burke. I want you to give it to Tony Burke into his hands. Oh, yes, okay, I'll do that. So the next minute, a week later, I got the phone call from their office saying, oh, we're sorry, sister, but the case has been failed. I got in the car and I drove around and I said, what do you mean it's been failed? <laughs> and they said, oh, the, you know, the department's not accepting it. The department, I said, that's not to go to the department. That's why I came around here. I wanted it to go to the minister, not the department. <laughs> and I yelled and screamed. And so anyway... Um, two days before the election, we got the visa. <laughs> we got the visa. Yeah. They we, they got it back from the department and gave it to the minister. Yeah. So, you know, it's 
you, you can't go to the department. Beware of the department. Yeah, no, that's definitely something I've learned from this book, that's for sure. Um, I just wanted to show quickly this. I thought it's um, right at the back here. The diagram. Uh, the choices facing asylum seekers at each stage of the process uh, in the appendix. And you can pass this around. <laughs> so this is basically the flow chart for how to seek asylum in Australia. In my thesis, it's in colour. Colour code. Yeah. Colour code. Um, so there is one thing I want to ask you just after this, but um, that looking at that process map, I mean, apart from a bill of rights, what what would you, if you had the power to make a change tomorrow, what would you do? I would get rid of the um, tribunal. Yep. And create a, a, a dedicated court to refugees. Um, similar to the dedicated family court. So they have a judge and they have lawyers and they don't go through two different legal processes because they're both different, they're very confusing and the tribunal is so biased. So I'd get rid of that. Um, Oh, banish the no work clause, get that out of the, get out of the the, um, Migration Act, pull that out straight away. Yeah. Because, like, you know, back in those days, we were communicating. I, I went to Geneva every year and we mixed with um, uh, the, the, what was it called, UNHCR Conference for um, Governments and NGOs. So we talked a lot with other NGOs and there was a group from Canada in those early days who were terrific. And they had a process where anybody that was came in and applied for refugee status, okay, We'll, you know, when we're ready, we'll call you up for an interview. Apart from that, they could work, they could be educated, they could do what they needed to do. Because then if they they weren't accepted, they went back with some money or some education. But for us, not so I sort of think, you know, We've got to do something like that. Um, I think also that if they're not recognised as refugees, then they should be able to look at other um, visas that they could apply for because a lot of them are quite educated. And in those days, you couldn't apply on Australian land. You had to leave the country in order to apply. So I had one case which was a... I don't, it wasn't just refugees, lots of people came to me. And um, this one was a, a, a man and a, who had a Peruvian wife. And uh, she, they applied for um, a partner visa for her, but she had a child that had a um, slight mental disability, very mild. So they couldn't, they couldn't accept her because, like, Every, every, anyone that's got a disability, you get this thing that it's going to be a cost of $480,000 to the taxpayer if we keep this person. It's just pulled out of the air. It's rubbish. So anyway, at that stage I was in good relations with the uh, department and so they said, look, she's going to have to leave the country. And I said, can you tell me when she's going to get the visa? And they said, yeah, we'll do that. So they rang me up on the Friday and said, we're going to give the visa on Monday. So she and the daughter got a plane and went to New Zealand for two weeks, two days. 
and I faxed it over to the hotel where they were staying and they came back. So they had a little weekend away. Yeah. 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 That's just madness. Madness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, but now, now they can apply here. Yeah, they don't have to. But for other visas, that's not. Um, I don't think they can. Still. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, uh, we'll take some questions in a second. One thing, just a slight little um, uh, alternate route. I just want to go on here. You do mention a few times in the book the parallels between the treatment of Indigenous Australians uh, yeah. and refugees. Mm. I just uh, and it comes up a few different times during the book. Yeah. Um, so it's definitely a recurring theme. Can you just speak a little bit about that? Um, yeah, I, I, well, you know, we'll, we'll, our history is a penal colony, isn't it? Um, but the thing that got me was, you know, that the government could make laws that accepted people so they can make, make this law for all the white people but for the Indigenous or the First Nations people, they can't access those laws. They've got their own and they're the ones that are cruel. And the white people or the others are not, they don't get caught under these laws. So it's, it's entirely discriminatory. And I found that was a connection, you know, looking at that, and the refugees is the exception. They're they're under um, except they they are accepted, which means they are not they cannot access the ordinary Australian's uh, legal system. They're they're apart. And when you have an exception, you're outside of the law. You're outside of the law, so anybody can do anything to them. So you take the colonisers; they could shoot any Aborigine they saw. And they wouldn't be in jail. And you put these people into a detention centre, you can do anything with them because they, they're not under our law. So they can be as brutal as they like. People can die and so what? Because they're an exception. They've been made an exception. which is, And that's what annoys me about the judges is that the judge's obligation is to treat everybody in the country fairly, not just one section and be nasty to another. So they should have been able to find ways to stand up to the government. And because they can't, then they, the government is render, rendering them powerless, impotent, impotent, because they've taken over uh, the... It's not their jurisdiction. They should not be interfering with the courts. They should not be telling the courts that they can't do this and they can't do that. But they do. Yeah. And we're not talking about Soviet Russia here. We're talking about Australia in 2022. You know what? A Ugandan said to me the other day, Aileen, this is what... Oh, yeah, when they talked about um, Morrison taking all of those um, portfolios, she rang me up and she said... Are we in Uganda or Australia? Yeah. That's what our leaders do all the time. Yeah, yeah. You know, so we're going right down on a slippery side slide, yeah. really, unless we can sort of alert people to it. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and thank you so much for doing this. I mean, I think this is a fantastic book. It is very powerful. Thank you. Um, Wow, what an incredible woman! <laughs> yeah, did you like? Did you hear her actually thumping on the table in passion at yep. one point? I did. Yep. Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> I, I just I like the fact that she admits she has a temper sometimes too when it comes to these issues. Well, you should. It's righteous Fair anger, enough. isn't yeah, it? I totally yeah. agree. Um, so for those that have just um, tuned in, that was Eileen Crow, uh, who Zach interviewed, and, and she's just come out with a book, Acts of Cruelty. Yep, and it's uh, it's basically a non-fiction book all about Australia's treatment of people who seek asylum uh, arriving by plane into Australia. Uh, it's very... Very powerful, very moving, and has some really interesting information as well and a very highly recommended reading, I think. So thank you so much to Eileen for coming up. Mm. Um, she's a, a fascinating person. And, uh, yeah, we'll definitely try and get her back up to the mountains next year at some time. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, cool. Um, that's that, uh, it for us. Um, you've been listening to Paperback Writer on Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM. With this Catherine. And Zach. <laughs> um, we'll see you next week with another show.